Hello, and welcome to the third and last part of Hobbit Lecture Number 4, Rescued in the Wild by the Wild. In the last episode, we saw how the goblins formed the standard of wickedness in the wild, but how some of the other residents of the wild, the eagles and the wargs, were a little more complicated. Today, we're going to move on to see how Bjorn fits into this picture. Now, there is no character who embodies the moral complexity of the wild more thoroughly than Bjorn. On the one hand, Bjorn is extremely dangerous and even unpredictable. Gandalf first refers to him as an unnamed somebody. We are told that this somebody lives close by, that he carved the steps out of the huge rock they are standing on, and that it would be very dangerous to encounter him at night. Gandalf calls him a very great person, but that's not necessarily reassuring, especially when Gandalf follows that statement by insisting that they must be careful not to annoy him, or heaven knows what will happen. This is all pretty alarming, especially to a hobbit who has been through all that Bilbo has experienced in the previous couple days. That night, Bilbo is going to dive under the blankets and hide his head after waking to growling and scuffling sounds outside, fearing that Bjorn is going to burst in on them in bear shape and kill them all. Now, like his misunderstanding about the prisoner's reference with the eagles, Bilbo is wronging his host here. But in both cases, the error is perfectly understandable. Bjorn himself hardly guaranteed his guests' safety that night, telling them that they must not stray outside until the sun is up on your peril. Bjorn may be, in several senses, a very great person, but he is extremely dangerous. Now, on the other hand, he is more clearly and firmly aligned against the wicked creatures of the mountains than the eagles are. The eagles enjoy cheating the goblins of their sport, but they don't often go out of their way to oppose the goblins. Bjorn, in contrast, is a determined and violent enemy of the goblins and wargs. We can see this most clearly in his greeting of Thorin. He is not overfond of dwarves, but he is willing to welcome Thorin because of who he is, Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, and as long as the dwarves are enemies of the goblins. Any dedicated foe of goblins can't be all bad in Bjorn's book. In fact, I think that that's even what's behind his reference to Thorin's ancestry. I can't imagine Bjorn caring at all about the fact that Thorin has royal lineage. Why should he care about who's king among the dwarves? It seems more likely that Bjorn cares about it because of what it tells him about his relationship with goblins. Thorin's family is most famous in those parts for their long and bitter war against the goblins. Thorin himself got his name Oakenshield in the great battle at the end of that war, in which his shield broke and he took up an oak club to fight with in his left hand. Bjorn knows that Thorin and his family are famous enemies of the goblins, and this is a big part of why he's willing to tolerate them. It may be understandable that Bilbo would be afraid of Bjorn himself, but Gandalf is certainly right to tell Bilbo that he is being silly, and that his wits are sleepy, when he suggests that Bjorn might lead the goblins and wargs down on them. Bjorn's very steadfast opposition to the goblins would seem to place him more firmly in the good guy's camp than the eagles were, but the very fierceness and bloodthirstiness of that opposition almost calls his goodness into question. He growls a satisfied good when Gandalf tells of killing goblins with a flash of lightning in the cave. Bjorn's further comment, it is some good being a wizard then, suggests that he wouldn't be interested in magic diamond studs or flowery fireworks. Good magic for Bjorn is magic that kills goblins. His comment later that had he been in the wolf ring, he would have given them more than fireworks seems to confirm this. When he is sure of the truth of their story, he is delighted, chuckling fiercely to himself about the death of the great goblin. One almost gets the impression that Bjorn might find watching goblins burn to death in trees most amusing. His confirmation of their story is perhaps the most disturbing. 
He proudly shows them the head of the goblin and the pelt of the warg that he captured, and whom he forced to tell him of what was happening. So Bjorn caught these two in the woods, probably tortured them to get them to tell their story, and then killed them and carried these trophies home to display triumphantly and nail on the wall. He is indeed, as Tolkien tells us, a fierce enemy. From one end to the next, Bjorn is a curious mixture of elements. It isn't even completely clear what species Bjorn is. While introducing him, Gandalf explains that he has two forms, a huge and powerful human form, and an even huger and more powerful bear form. Gandalf even mentions that there's some uncertainty what his real identity is. That is, whether he's a man who can turn into a bear, or a bear who can turn into a man. Gandalf says he fancies that he is at root a man, but that he can't say for sure. Tolkien says in one of his letters that Bjorn is a man, but he seems to be clarifying in that passage of that letter that he is not an elf, rather than passing judgment on the bear-human debate about Bjorn's origins. The important thing about Bjorn is that he's both man and bear, human and beast. Even his name reflects this. Bjorn is an Anglo-Saxon word that is used to mean man or warrior. The Anglo-Saxons had like 30 different words for warrior, but the word originally meant bear. We should remember the conflict between the eagles as predators and the woodmen as settlers and farmers, clearing and cultivating the land and trying to tame a little section of the wild. Bjorn, in his very nature, relates to both sides of that conflict. Much of what we see about him demonstrates this duality. He lives alone, or at least without human companionship, in community only with animals. His bond with animals is such that he does not hunt or eat wild beasts. And yet Bjorn certainly does not live a feral existence at one with the beasts in their natural habitat. He may not have much that is made of metal, but he lives in a very human house. In fact, the description of his hall raises associations with congenial gatherings of humans. It is modeled exactly on the old Anglo-Saxon Mead Hall, the homely gathering place of the Anglo-Saxon warrior clan. Bjorn sits on a chair at a table, eating food brought to him on trays, even though those trays are brought to him by animals who act and, in the case of the dogs, even walk like humans. In his home as well as his person, Bjorn brings together the world of beasts and the world of men. Even more than the eagles, Bjorn is clearly a good guy. He may be even more dangerous, even more alarmingly savage than the eagles are, and in his enmity with the goblins he is almost as fierce as the goblins and wargs themselves. But in addition to being a bad enemy, he is also a good friend. When Bjorn confirms that Gandalf and the dwarves were telling the truth, he is immediately concerned to ensure their safety and to help them however he can. The fundamental fact of his life is not hatred of the goblins. It is his love for his animal friends, whom Gandalf says he loves as his children. And that devotion and tenderness demonstrates Bjorn's real character. He still isn't completely safe. Gandalf warns them quite ominously that they do not guess what would happen to them if they mistreated Bjorn's ponies. But even the threat of horrible violence implicit in Bjorn's silently shadowing their party as they travel towards Mirkwood is a kind of testimony to his tenderness for the animals. Bjorn is a man, but unlike the woodman, he is a true native of the wild. Okay, having spent some time with the residents of the wild, I'd like to back up a bit and think about the nature of this world. Specifically, I'd like to think more about what the term wild appears to mean, what Tolkien is saying about this world when he calls it wild. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary gives many different usages for the word, but among them I'd identify two primary threads, wild meaning uncontrolled or unrestrained, sometimes with implications of violence or savagery, and wild meaning uncivilized or undomesticated. The wild in Tolkien's world is certainly wild in the first sense, 
all the residents of the wild are, whether good or evil, uncontrolled and prone to sudden violent action. I would say, however, that the primary thematic importance of the wild in The Hobbit is the second sense of the word. The wild is uncivilized in the sense that human society and social customs have made few inroads there. Tolkien makes a big deal of Bjorn's lack of politeness, for instance. We are told that he is never very polite, and in fact he seems to disregard social niceties almost aggressively. When the wizard says, I am Gandalf, Bjorn replies flatly, never heard of him, then frowns down at the hobbit and says quite slightingly, and what's this little fellow, as if he were some kind of sideshow freak. The politeness of Bilbo and the dwarves is quite funny in contrast with Bjorn's bluntness. Bilbo's painful consciousness of his many missing buttons seems silly, as if Bjorn would care, and the elaborate bowing and hood-sweeping of Balin and Dwalin actually makes Bjorn laugh, and he tells them to sit down and stop wagging. But it isn't that the Wild is totally without social customs. Bjorn's speech is rough, but his hospitality is excellent. His furniture is crude, and the waiters are rather unorthodox, but the food is good, the best meal they've had since leaving Elrond's house. The eagles apparently observe some elaborate courtesies among themselves, even though those courtesies are foreign to Bilbo and the dwarves. There is a polite thing to say among eagles when you say goodbye, we learn, and though neither Bilbo nor the dwarves knows the correct reply, Gandalf does, fortunately. The social customs of the wild are different, but they do exist. In fact, in some ways, politeness is even more important in the wild than in more polished societies. In the wild, politeness might save your life. We are told, for instance, that you ought not to be rude to an eagle when you are only the size of a hobbit and are up in his eyrie at night. Balin and Dwalin try to appease Bjorn's disapproval by doing their best to be frightfully polite, and when Bjorn cuts through the conventional dwarven greeting by telling them that he doesn't want their service, just their names, they don't dare to be offended. Thorin even tries to butter up the great goblin with a little flattery and politeness, with his comments back in chapter 4 about truly hospitable mountains. Bjorn feels free to be rude to Thorin and company because he doesn't fear them, certainly not with his army of bears at his call, but even he is reluctant to trust his guests until he knows them as well as his brother, or better. I think that the primary contrast that these chapters invite, however, is not between the wild and the civilized, but between the wild and the domestic. Through these chapters, and especially chapter 7, we are reminded of this contrast. Even the title of chapter 7, Queer Lodgings, works to bring this issue to our attention. In this chapter, Bilbo and the dwarves are lodged in two very different homes, but they're not homely homes. They're queer, strange, and in some ways uncomfortable. As usual, it's Bilbo's Bagginsish perspective that repeatedly emphasizes this contrast. This occurs most forcefully at the very beginning of chapter 7, when Bilbo wakes up in the eagle's eyrie. When he awakes, he jumps up to look at the time and to go and put his kettle on and he finds that he is not home at all. Now, there are many, many ways in which an eagle's nest, high in the Misty Mountains, is different from Bilbo's hobbit hole under the hill. What strikes Bilbo most forcefully, however, is the lack of domestic comforts. He sits down and wishes in vain for a wash and a brush, lamenting also the absence of tea, toast, and bacon for breakfast. Bilbo twice gets in trouble, or nearly does, for continuing to process his experience in the old Bagginsish terms that are inappropriate to his current setting. The first is when he compares the eagle who rescues him to a fork, and then a stork, and himself to a bit of bacon. Have you noticed that Bilbo seems always to be thinking about bacon? The second and more serious mistake is when Gandalf is explaining about Bjorn's remarkable ability to change himself into a bear. Gandalf initially calls him a skin-changer, 
meaning, as he goes on to explain, that Bjorn can change his skin, altering his form. Bilbo, however, having no prior experience with this kind of thing, thinks Gandalf is saying that Bjorn is a furrier, a man that calls rabbits conies when he doesn't turn their skins into squirrels. Bilbo's prior experience here not only misleads him, but misleads him disastrously, leading Gandalf to urge Bilbo not to mention the word furrier again as long as you are within a hundred miles of his house, nor rug, cape, tippet, muff, nor any such unfortunate word. This gaffe by Bilbo reminds us of something important that we've observed before. Wildness is not necessarily evil, and civilization is not necessarily good. Bjorn is strong, dangerous, and potentially savage, but you will notice that what Gandalf fears would make him savage are references to the civilized custom of killing wild animals in order to turn their skins into fashionable clothing. Bilbo's domesticated background couldn't possibly have led him farther wrong in his guess about Bjorn. The wild may be strange and frightening, compared to the quiet, comfortable, predictable world that Bilbo is used to but Tolkien at times emphasizes the beauty and grandeur that it also has. For instance, as Bilbo is being hoisted out of the burning tree and carried off by the eagle, we are told that he looked down between his dangling toes and saw the dark lands opening wide underneath him, touched here and there with the light of the moon on a hillside rock or a stream in the plains. Similarly, when Bilbo takes off on the back of an eagle the following day, Tolkien describes the rugged country spread out below him. The mists were in the valleys and hollows, entwined here and there about the peaks and pinnacles of the hills. Bilbo, however, through whom we catch these glimpses of beauty, is not really very open to it. Both times he actually shuts his eyes to it. His brief conversation with the eagle during the second flight emphasizes the conflict in outlook between the tame little hobbit and the large, majestic native of the wild. Perceiving the hobbit's fear, through his frantic grip on his back, the eagle notes encouragingly, It is a fair morning with little wind. What is finer than flying? This, to an eagle, is no doubt a rhetorical question, but Mr. Baggins has an answer. A warm bath and late breakfast on the lawn afterwards. He doesn't give his answer aloud, showing again the prudent courtesy of the wild, but the answer draws our attention to the full peculiarity of the situation. A short time ago, Mr. Baggins was riding uncomfortably on the back of a pony through the Shire, wondering what people would think of him in his ill-fitting dwarfhood, and worrying about the fact that he had no pocket handkerchiefs and no spending money. Now we see him astride the back of a giant eagle, soaring over the misty mountains, the great river, and the eaves of Mirkwood, and preparing to descend into that wilderness with no food, mounts, or supplies of any kind. The scene shows us how far Bilbo has come as an adventurer. He's made remarkable progress, but his perspective has certainly not undergone a revolution. He might be bearing up under his circumstances remarkably well, but he can't enter into the eagle's enjoyment of his wild surroundings. He may now be capable of sleeping on the hard rock of the eagle's eyrie more soundly than he had done in his feather bed, but his heart still yearns for the quiet and domestic pleasures of Bag End. And yet... There is one fascinating moment that I believe points to a genuine change or the beginnings of a change in Bilbo's perspective. The scene I'm talking about is the description of the dream that Bilbo has while sleeping in the eagle's ivory. In the sentence that ends chapter 6, Tolkien says, All night he dreamed of his own house and wandered in his sleep into all his different rooms, looking for something that he could not find nor remember what it looked like. I find this dream, never referred to again and totally unnecessary for the plot of the story, really fascinating, especially in the circumstances. 
It happens in what is to Bilbo a most inhospitable place. The eagles have rescued and fed them, but as I mentioned earlier, Bilbo's thoughts while there remind us of how undomesticated and to Bilbo uncomfortable the wild hospitality of the eagles is. It shouldn't be terribly surprising, therefore, that when he goes to sleep he dreams of his hobbit hole. Indeed, that's just what we might expect. What is so interesting about the dream, however, is that it is not just a longing dream, a dream of a cozy breakfast in his sitting-room, undoubtedly involving bacon, and the kettle just beginning to sing. He dreams of home, but it's a dissatisfied dream. In his dream, he doesn't find what he's looking for in any of the rooms of his house. He doesn't even know what he's looking for, but whatever it is, it's not there in Bag End. I think that in this dream we can see a hint of how Bilbo's adventurous life in the wild is changing him. What has happened to him is not just a matter of his took side predominating over his Baggins side, however the Baggins side might keep informing his perspective. Here we see, perhaps, his Baggins perspective itself being influenced and altered. It may seem like he is unmoved by his wild surroundings, shutting his eyes to its sublimity, and longing only for his safe and quiet world, but the dream suggests that his experiences are actually beginning to affect his relationship with the domestic world. The implication is that however much he may at times wish he could just be magically transported back to his home, he would not be completely happy or satisfied if that wish somehow came true. I think that by the end of the book he will find what he's looking for, but he hasn't done it yet. Okay, there are just two more things I want to talk about here, and then I'm done with these chapters. First, I'd like to come back to a trend that I drew attention to several lectures ago, the tendency of this story to involve rather stunningly unlikely coincidences. These begin to pile up quite remarkably in these two chapters. Let's take a step back and think about the amazing pieces of luck that have just occurred. When the party set out from Rivendell, we're told that, although there are many paths and many passes over the Misty Mountains, few of them actually work out. But Gandalf and Elrond were around to guide them to the right road to the right pass. They get diverted, of course, when they are captured by the goblins, and the result of that side trip is that they come out of the mountains, as Gandalf explains, too far to the north, leaving them with some awkward country ahead. This seems like a bad thing, an unfortunate accident, for they are no longer anywhere near the old forest road through Mirkwood that they had originally been shooting for. However, they learn later that their bad fortune has turned out to be good fortune, for Bjorn tells them that that old forest road would not have been any good, for it is now often used by the goblins, while the forest road itself, he had heard, was overgrown and disused at the eastern end, and led to impassable marshes where the paths had long been lost. As Gandalf himself admits, they have been brought through the mountains and to this fortuitous spot, not only by good management, but by good luck. But this stroke of luck in their road is small in comparison to the effect that their passing through this region has had on the local politics. In their flight from the goblins, Bilbo and company stumble into the very glade that just happens to be the meeting place of the goblins and wargs on the very night that the goblins and wargs just happen to have arranged to meet in order to descend on the woodmen in the valleys in force and exterminate them. This, too, seems like a bad thing, a very unfortunate accident, you know, to blunder into the very gathering place of the enemy you are trying to escape. But the presence of the dwarves in the woods this night doubly ensures that the planned attack will not happen. First, the dwarves have killed the great goblin, which creates quite a bit of confusion. Then they injure and terrify the wargs with Gandalf's fire and distract the entire combined army with the subsequent bonfire. 
The bad fortune of Bilbo and his friends turned out to be very good fortune for the woodman in the valley, as the goblin attack is cancelled. But that's just the beginning. If Gandalf hadn't started the fire in the forest, the eagles wouldn't have been alerted to the fact that the goblins were up to something, which we will see turns out to be a very fortunate thing. And if the eagles hadn't put Gandalf and company down near Bjorn, Bjorn wouldn't have found out about the planned attack and gotten involved himself, which will turn out to have a very large impact not only on the big events at the end of the book, but also on the future political situation in the upper Anduin Valley. So not only has the attack of the goblins and wargs been temporarily thwarted, but the primary forces of good in the region have been mobilized, all as a consequence of the fact that the dwarves happen to run to that one particular spot in the forest. If we take the time to notice these things, we will see that it begins to look like there is some kind of conspiracy going on, some kind of larger destiny that is shaping the events surrounding Bilbo's quest. Tolkien brings this theme of destiny out most forcibly, though still rather subtly, in the song that the dwarves sing in Bjorn's hall. The dwarves, Gandalf, and Bilbo have just had dinner with Bjorn. While they eat, Bjorn tells tales of the wild lands on this side of the mountains, and especially of the terrible forest of Mirkwood. This makes the dwarves uncomfortable, thinking about their own road through the forest. After dinner, the dwarves start telling tales of their own. The tales are very dwarf-like, all about gold and silver and jewels and the making of things by smithcraft, but Bjorn is not very interested, and before long he leaves his guests. Left to themselves in Bjorn's hall, the dwarves eventually start singing, and Tolkien says that these are just a few verses of their song. You can find the song on pages 116 and 117. I'll read it through first. The wind was on the withered heath, but in the forest stirred no leaf. Their shadows lay by night and day, and dark things silent crept beneath. The wind came down from mountains cold, and like a tide it roared and rolled. The branches groaned, the forest moaned, and leaves were laid upon the mould. The wind went on from west to east, all movement in the forest ceased, but shrill and harsh across the marsh its whistling voices were released. The grasses hissed, their tassels bent, the reeds were rattling, on it went, or shaken pool under heaven's cool, where racing clouds were torn and rent. It passed the lonely mountain bare, and swept above the dragon's lair, there black and dark lay boulders stark, and flying smoke was in the air. It left the world and took its flight, over the wide seas of the night, the moon set sail upon the gale, and stars were fanned to leaping light. Okay, so the first thing we need to do is to make sure we understand what's going on in this song. What's it about? Well, the plot of the song, if we can call it that, is about a great wind blowing across the land. The lands mentioned in the song are not named, save for the Lonely Mountain. But that one name shows us that the song is in fact about a specific region, and it allows us to guess pretty easily what the other places must be. In the first verse, the wind is on the withered heath, but that wind is not yet stirring the forest. From the fact that shadows lie in the forest by night and day, and that dark things are creeping silently within it, it seems pretty clear that the forest is Mirkwood. The withered heath in the opening line is probably Eriador, on the western side of the mountains, because in the second verse, the wind crosses over the mountains and rolls like a tide down to Mirkwood making the branches groan and stripping the leaves from the trees while the whole forest moans. The wind continues from west to east, arriving at the pools and marshes by the long lake to the east of Mirkwood and near the Lonely Mountain. 
The dark things in the forest are stilled, but the marshes break forth with the voice of the wind, the grasses hissing and whistling, and the reeds rattling while the pools shake and the clouds are torn by the wind. The wind thus arrives at the lonely mountain, and it sweeps above the dragon's lair, before it finally, in the last verse, leaves the world entirely and takes its flight over the wide seas of the night. The moon is described as sailing on the wind, and the stars themselves are fanned into fire. This last image, of course, is a very dwarven one, comparing the stars to sparks being blown into flame, as one might see in a forge when the bellows is blowing. So we can see a coherent narrative about the journey of this wind being told in the song. The next question is why the dwarves are singing it. Well, one reading seems to suggest itself right away. The dwarves, as we saw, were just thinking about their own road through Mirkwood. There are also certain similarities between this song and the song that the dwarves sang in Bag End about their quest to recover their gold, the We Must Away Air Break of Day song. Both are after-dinner songs, sung in the dark in their host's home, and both have exactly the same verse form, four-line verses, with one rhyming ending to lines one, two, and four, and a second rhyming word repeated twice in line three. There is good reason, therefore, to think that the dwarves are thinking of their own quest again as they sing, and the reference to the lonely mountain and the dragon's lair would seem to make that a near certainty. What, then, does the story of this mighty wind have to do with the dwarves' quest? Well, the path of this gale is noticeably similar to the dwarves' own. It begins in Eriador, crosses the misty mountains, plows through Mirkwood, whistles through the lakes and marshes, and then whips around the bare rocks and stark boulders of the lonely mountain where smog lurks. Those latter parts of the journey, not yet actually achieved by the dwarves themselves, are therefore somewhat optimistic. In fact, the whole song is extremely optimistic, even arrogant. If I am right to see this parallel between the path of the wind and the path of the dwarves, then the song is quite a remarkable glorification of their own destiny. The winds of fate which are guiding them home roll like a tide over the mountains, toss the dark forest of Mirkwood, and frighten the evil creatures in it into stillness, shake the pools and shred the clouds, and then engulf the mountain itself. Smaug is connected suggestively with smoke rising from the mountain as the wind arrives. Apparently the dragon is to be swept away with ease like smoke flying before a gale. This all sounds very cheerful, and one can easily imagine how the dwarves would want to pump themselves up a bit with a song like this, especially given how nervous we are told they are about entering Mirkwood, the worst of the perils they had to pass before they came to the dragon's stronghold. However, the final verse of the song suggests that it is more than just a dwarven fantasy. The last verse suggests that the Lonely Mountain is not, in fact, the end point for the journey of this mighty wind, and that its concerns are greater and higher. Let me read that last stanza again. It left the world and took its flight over the wide seas of the night. The moon set sail upon the gale, and stars were fanned to leaping light. If the wind is supposed to parallel, in some sense, the dwarf's journey and quest, it ends up by putting that quest into a much larger context. The wind that is to escort the dwarves triumphantly to their home is the same that takes its flight into the heavens, blowing the moon along its course and fanning the stars into flame. This fearsome wind, which always seemed rather too powerful and impressive to be only the dwarves' own, turns out to be a celestial wind. It makes sense in Tolkien's world that it would be blowing from the west, therefore. The west is where the heavenly powers who made the earth, kindled the stars, and set the moon in motion live, as Tolkien describes in the Silmarillion. 
The dwarf's song, therefore, which might sound at first so arrogant, is actually rather humble. The dwarves, and Bilbo, and the wizard, are being swept along by this divine wind, and their quest is just a part of the larger plan and pattern. I'm not at all sure that the dwarves themselves fully understand the theological implications of their song here. Perhaps they are just talking big and trying to boost their own confidence. But we as readers can certainly see more in it. Hearing the song, we can see the ways in which it points to the larger destiny that we can just now begin to perceive taking shape in the rest of the story. That's all for chapters 6 and 7. In the next lecture, Bilbo builds his resume. I'll discuss chapter 8, Flies and Spiders, chapter 9, Barrels Out of Bond, and chapter 10, A Warm Welcome. In that lecture, we will see Bilbo pass into the next stage of his career, as he becomes the real leader of the party, and we will watch as the question of destiny comes more forcibly to the surface. One last note as to scheduling. I am posting this last part of the lecture at the beginning of September, and that means that the fall semester has begun at Washington College. My time, therefore, is going to be very much absorbed for a while with planning my courses, grading papers, and attending meetings, all of the delightful routine of the academic year. I will be continuing to work on my lectures and podcasts as much as I can in the next few months, but I have to recognize the fact that it may be a while before Lecture 5 is ready, and I have to ask for your patience. I hope, however, to have some other podcast material for you sooner than that, as I continue to work on answering your questions and engaging in discussion and debate about Tolkien's works. As always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.